we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. I'm Akhil Amar. You've just heard excerpts from the Declaration of Independence, approved by the Continental Congress on July 4, 1776, announcing that the 13 North American British colonies sought independence from Great Britain. We discussed the Declaration and its influence on the Constitution and beyond on this week's We the People, commemorating Independence Day. Here's my conversation with Professor Steve Calabresi and your host, Jeffrey Rosen. Akil, you have introduced this show by reading the most famous passage from the Declaration of Independence, the one that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Tell us, what were the philosophical sources of those words, and what was the expression of the American mind, as Thomas Jefferson put it, that he was attempting to distill? So I think there are three levels that we can talk about. Um, first, we can talk about just the, the, the deepest background of the broader sources that influence the American revolutionary generation. Um, here's one thing that I say, you are sweet, Jeff, in mentioning my new book, and I'm uh, going to uh, quote from it with, uh, um, uh, with your indulgence and, and, and Steve's. Um, American revolutionaries sampled from a sumptuous smorgasbord of theorists, John Locke, Algernon Sidney, James Harrington, uh, English levelers led by John Lilburn, Commonwealth pamphleteers such as John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, Scottish Enlightenment figures including David Hume, Adam Smith, Thomas Reed, and Francis Hutchinson, and many more. Okay, so there's a, just a broad philosophical background, of course, um, for many Americans. The Bible is also a particularly important um, source of insight and inspiration. Um, so um, there's um, that um, philosophical tradition. Then there's a practical tradition. Um, I say revolutionaries also built on more than a century and a half of de facto self-rule in the new world. So um, Americans have actually been governing themselves um, in uh, homegrown assemblies, juries, militias, town meetings, other local democratic 
structures. They've been making countless decisions day to day without the intervention of a, a, a king halfway across the world or, or a nobility also halfway across the world, the no real noblemen in, in America. So, so there's some philosophical traditions. There's just a century and a half of actual practical self-government, um, and a, a conversation that they've been having among themselves, really beginning as early as 1760 as they begin to define their sense of, of what they think their rights are vis-a-vis -vis, uh, George III, vis-a-vis -vis the, the British Parliament. Um, and then, um, so, and, and, and so there's, there's a lot of percolation from 1760 to 1776 that Jefferson is trying to distill all sorts of, of things that are happening in, in the Virginia House of Burgesses and the Massachusetts Assembly and Boston town meetings and grand juries everywhere. So there's all of that. It, it's a, it's a, a continent teeming with conversation, awash in um, excited theorizing. And then, as my friend Steve, I think, um, is a particular expert on, there's one particular distillation uh, that comes out of Virginia um, by a man named George Mason um, that may have had a particular influence on Jefferson in composing um, uh, especially the, the, the most famous words of the, of, of the Declaration. And I'll, so I'll let Steve tell that story. Wonderful. Thank you so much for setting up these three categories so well. The philosophical sources, which you summarize in chapter three of your book, and which Jefferson said were an attempt to uh, harmonize the sentiments of the day expressed in conversation, letters, printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney, then a decade of experience in government under the state constitutions, and then the Virginia Declaration in particular. Steve, let's take each of those in turn. Um, and on, on the philosophical point, uh, what was the broad vision of natural rights that Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, and the other were attempting well, if, to show? If it's okay, before I get to natural rights, I'd like to talk about the philosophical underpinnings of equality, which is mentioned in the Declaration before it gets to natural rights. And uh, I agree here with what Akhil said. Um, the first written formulation of the idea that all men are created equal that I'm aware of is the poet John Milton wrote a defense for Oliver Cromwell of the execution of King Charles I. And in defending it, he said that um, all men were, were, he said essentially all men were equal to one another and therefore, if a majority of men wanted to get rid of a king, they should be able to do so. And Charles I was no better and no worse than any other citizen of the realm. And Milton's ideas grew out of the tradition of the Levellers, which was a political movement in England in the 1640s that advocated equality and getting rid of feudalism and all of that. Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan says that he finds that men are essentially equal, and he says even the strongest can be killed by the weakest if they conspire to use poison. And he says in terms of the faculties of intelligence, he finds men even more nearly equal than they are in physical strength. Uh, and then John Locke picks up on the equality idea and emphasizes it heavily. And that's it's probably Locke especially who communicated it to George Mason. 
Locke also contributed the idea of inherent natural rights and said famously, in the beginning, all the world was America. And, you know, the sovereign individual in a particular place, and that person was a rights holder. So I think, I think Locke gets a lot of credit for the, the individual rights idea. Um, Akil is right. The, the first draft of Virginia's Declaration of Rights, turning to the impact of these philosophical ideas, was published in May of 1776. And it was a huge hit. It was republished in newspapers up and down all 13 colonies. It had a huge impact. And what George Mason said in the first draft is uh, recognizable to those of us who've heard Akeel's reading of the Declaration of Independence. Mason said, quote, that all men are created equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. So that language inspired similar clauses, uh, born free and equal clauses in Pennsylvania in September of 1776, in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. All in all, seven of the original state constitutions had clauses that grew out of this clause. And miraculously enough, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson had the Virginia Declaration, had all the state bills of rights, but particularly the Virginia Declaration of Rights, translated into French in the 1780s. And that had an impact on the French uh, Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, uh, which was uh, moved by the Marquis de Lafayette, a close friend of Americans, and um, uh, which was adopted by the French National Assembly in August of 1789, right after Bastille Day. And I'll just read you the first article of the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, which remains the Bill of Rights of France to down, down to the present day. It begins by saying, one, all men are born and remain free and equal in rights. Social dis, uh, distinctions may be uh, founded uh, only upon the common good. And then it goes on in section two to say, the aim of all political association is the preservation of the natural and uh, imprescriptible rights of man. This language of George Mason's had an international impact. It was a huge impact on the colonies, impact on Thomas Jefferson in drafting the Declaration, and an impact on the French Declaration of Rights, which is at the core of French constitutionalism. So inspiring. Thank you so much for that wonderful history and context. Akil, um, Steve has introduced Mason's draft uh, from May 1776. What can you tell us about where Mason got those immortal words, why it was Mason who channeled that language, which influenced the other state constitutions, and what the influence of the Virginia Declaration was on the other state constitutions during the revolutionary period. So um, Jefferson himself had been in Williamsburg not too long before he shuttles up to Philadelphia to um, be involved in the composition of the Declaration of Independence. So he saw what 
uh, Mason was doing. He himself wanted very much to play a role in the drafting of the Virginia Constitution, uh, of which the, this Declaration of Rights, a Bill of Rights, was a kind of a preface, a preamble, a part. Um, now, just just take a, just a big step back for our audience. You see, America is is on the cusp of basically breaking the the, the colonies are on the cusp of of breaking with England, war as a practical matter has already broken out in most places. Lexington and Concord occur in 1775, April. Uh, Bunker Hill, which is a, a huge battle, and, and there, there, there are thousands of people uh, killed and wounded um, in this fear struggle. That's June 1775. George Washington has, is already um, in, in uh, July up uh, in Boston um, as the head of a, a self-proclaimed continental army that's been authorized by this uh, continental congress. They, they haven't declared independence yet, but they're rebels and they're, they're fighting. Um, but for the moment, at least initially in 1775, they're saying, well, we're loyal. We just want you to respect our rights and then we'll, we'll go back to um, our farms. But, but by March, April, May, June of 1776, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that the Brits aren't going to back down. It's going to come to full-blown war. Um, and so these colonies are beginning to think about formally declaring their independence, breaking away from Britain. And, and if they're going to do that, they're going to need to come up with some legal structure of their own, uh, both at the provincial level, like what used to be colonies, they're now going to become states, so they're going to need to come up with state constitutions to replace their old colonial charters and other instruments of governance, and they're going to need to come up with some um, a system of hanging together um, uh, state to state to replace the British Empire. So, so Jefferson was down at Williamsburg, and he was really interested in, in Virginia coming up with rules for Virginians, okay? Um, and, and so he is there with Mason. He's aware of this. He takes a version of Mason's declaration. He has it um, among his papers. The newspapers are also picking up on what Mason has done, and not just in Virginia. On June 1st, the Virginia Gazette in Williamsburg publishes uh, the language that uh, Steve quoted. Um, but over the next um, a few weeks, that Virginia newspaper, the Virginia Gazette, starts to circulate. You know, it's, it's like retweeting. It, um, people are bringing it up to Philadelphia. And that draft gets reprinted in um, at least four Philadelphia newspapers, the, the Pennsylvania Evening Post, the Pennsylvania Ledger, the Pennsylvania Journal, the Pennsylvania Gazette. I'm mentioning all this because the National Constitution Center is obviously Philly-based, um, and the Philly newspapers are picking up on, on, on this. And, and so people in Philadelphia um, working with Jefferson, other people on this committee of the Continental Congress that's been drafted to come up with, with some set of reasons for uh, declaring independence are paying attention to this. So that's the initial story, the story of American independence, of this independence of each state and of the, the, the states as, a, as an alliance. They will declare themselves on June, excuse me, on July 2nd to be free and independent states, and then they'll give a statement of reasons two days later on July 4th, what we call the Declaration of Independence, and they're influenced by this um, a Mason a draft that's appearing in local newspapers. But that's only half the story because now all the other states are going to have to have constitutions of their own as well. 
And they're looking at um, this Virginia document and other documents. And as Steve told you, um, that's going to influence the Pennsylvania Constitution, which has a Declaration of Rights in 1776. It's going to influence, um, uh, he said, in all seven state constitutions have declarations of rights that say, in effect, all men are born free and equal, including the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, um, which is drafted in part by John Adams, who, of course, is right there with Thomas Jefferson and, and Ben Franklin and others um, in Philadelphia in 1776. And I'm going to say one other thing. It's a little bit edgier, but we have to talk about it. It's the proverbial elephant in the room. These same words that are plus or minus in the Virginia Declaration, which gets tweaked a bit um, later on um, uh, after that first draft, these same words that are plus or minus in Virginia that are in the, 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 uh, what becomes the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, that are in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, a version of which are in the Declaration of Independence, this idea that we're all free and equal, those words, of course, come to be operationalized very differently in the different states when it comes to slavery. That's the elephant in the room. And in Virginia, there are folks in Virginia who say, oh, gee, if it really is true that all men are born equally free and independent, well, then we can't have slavery. And so that language actually gets changed in Virginia. So it's all men when they enter into society. And so the theory of some is, oh, well, slaves really aren't part of the same society as ours or something. So, so in, Pennsylvania, in, in Virginia, they have those words and they don't get rid of slavery immediately. But in Pennsylvania... Philadelphia, where, where the, the, the declaration is adopted, the state constitution actually has these words. And very shortly, the Pennsylvania legislature will pass a statute in 1780 providing for the gradual abolition of slavery, not freeing of individual slaves, but ending slavery everywhere. And in Massachusetts, uh, the constitution of 1780 says all men are born free and equal. And the courts in Massachusetts by 1783-84 are going to read that language from John Adams building on Thomas Jefferson and George Mason. They're going to read that language to abolish, to end slavery altogether in Massachusetts. So if we're going to talk about everyone, you know, being free and equal, well, free, you know, what about slavery? Equal, what about slavery? And these words, even though they're in a bunch of state constitutions, come to mean different things, let's say, in Virginia uh, than in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. Thank you so much for that, Akil. Uh, dear We the People listeners, you can compare the language th of the state constitutions that Akil is describing by going to the interactive constitution, click on the drafting table, and you'll be able to see the various drafts of the free and equal clause that Madison drew on when he drafted the Bill of Rights. So Steve, Akil has distinguished between the Virginia language uh, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter into society, they cannot, by compact, divest their posterity with Pennsylvania, which leaves out that society language that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights. Uh, you've written so uh, brilliantly about the influence of the Declaration on the state constitutions. Help us disaggregate the various state constitutions um, further and describe the influence of the Declaration between 1776 and 1787. Thank you. Um, I, I agree with the keel. Uh, the, the second final draft of the Virginia Declaration does qualify 
the Lockean language by saying it applies to men when they enter into a state of society. And uh, that their slavery is actually challenged in Virginia under that second draft of the Virginia Declaration and the Virginia courts uphold it as constitutional. Um, the, the, the best rendition of the uh, born free and equal idea appears in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, which says all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. And today, Massachusetts has amended that clause so that it begins not all men, but all persons. And the story of the born free and equal clauses is that, as Akil said, seven out of 12 states which had written constitutions in 1791 have Lockean clauses in them. Uh, so that's uh, a majority of the state constitutions in 1781. If you go forward and see the influence of the born free and equal idea, 24 states out of 37 in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, had born free and equal clauses. And if you move forward to today, 39 state constitutions out of 50 had born free and equal clauses. So this idea of the Declaration of Independence and that we have birthright equality and birthright natural rights uh, is baked into state constitutional law. Uh, it's baked into the 14th Amendment, as I'd be happy to explain later. But there is, as you said, a difference in that the northern colonies don't have the enter into a state of society qualifier, which Virginia added to protect slavery. Uh, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court did, as Akil said, declare slavery unconstitutional based on this born free and equal clause. The New Hampshire Supreme Court and the Indiana Supreme Court said the same thing. So uh, clearly, at least in some of the colonies, it was recognized that slavery was inconsistent with the idea that all men are born free and equal. Akil, further thoughts on the free and equal clause. Can you also disaggregate for our We the People friends what an unalienable right is uh, the New Hampshire Constitution says, of natural rights, certain are by their nature unalienable because no equivalent can be received for them. Of this kind are the rights of conscience. And the framers thought that because our beliefs are the product of our reason, we can't alienate or surrender that power to reason to government. We can't control our own thoughts and therefore we can't alienate to others the power to control them. Tell us more about how the framers understood alienable and unalienable rights and how that was expressed during this period. Okay, I'll do my best. Uh, and before that, I just want to echo one really important thing that my friend Steve mentioned, which is this idea of born, free, and equal. That word born is really significant. And, and again, Virginia qualifies it when they say, well, it's not just when you're born, but when you enter into society. But, but if the other states just say you're born free, you're born equal. That word born is really important. And Steve says it's going to lead to an idea later on. It's the same root concept of birthright equality, a birthright freedom. He said, and I agree with him, birthright 
citizenship. And in America, after a civil war, this uh, idea that you you can, it's in Jefferson's declaration, but he didn't quite live it out. Of course, he, he's a slaveholder who never frees the slaves in death. But this Jeffersonian idea is interpreted by Lincoln very famously when he says at Gettysburg, four score and seven years ago, um, and so he's saying that in 1863 and 87 years earlier, that's 1776. He's talking about the Declaration. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So he's saying that's the central idea of America. He's reinterpreting it in a way and thinks that's what the central idea of America is. Now he dies. Um, shortly after the war, um, but the Fourteenth Amendment and the Thirteenth Amendment will end slavery everywhere, not just in in Massachusetts, not just in Indiana, not just in New Hampshire, but in Virginia and everywhere else. Wow, immediate, universal, uncompensated emancipation. Wow, wow, wow. And then the Fourteenth Amendment will begin, as Steve said, with a riff on this: all persons born. Same key word or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So we're all, if we're born in America, we're born citizens. We're born free and equal, whether we're born black or white or brown or Jew or Gentile, in wedlock or out of wedlock, firstborn or fifthborn in our families. The three of us actually are all firstborn. <laughs> I just happen to know, you know, you just, Steve, Jeff, and, and I. Um, but, but, you know, we're, you know, we're no better than our siblings in the eyes of the law in, in that regard. So, so, so deep, whether our parents are citizens or um, as, uh, are, are not citizens, mine weren't the day I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, even if, whether they're here legally or not, we're all born equal, born citizens. That's what Steve is talking about. And um, uh, uh, um, Jeff, since you mentioned this amazing uh, thing that the National Constitution Center has created, the interactive constitution, you mentioned the drafting table, um, I'd want our audience to know about a little essay that I did um, in the interactive constitution on that first sentence of the 14th Amendment, where I sort of riff a little bit on this idea, which Steve helped me see more than anyone else, that this is about the idea of birth equality, birth freedom, birthright citizenship. It's a glorious idea. And now it's not just in the Declaration of Independence or various state constitutions. Oh, a version of it is explicitly in the federal constitution, and you see it in the word born. Um, which is this key word throughout the, the centuries. Now, you asked me about a different word, which actually isn't in the Constitution, you know, the word unalienable or inalienable. Um, now, I have to tell our audience that one of the best meditations on the meaning of this word that I know of was actually written by a student of mine way back when named Jeff Rosen in a note that he wrote in the Yale Law Journal. He talks about all sorts of different kinds of rights, alienable versus unalienable. But now you're right. Here's the idea. Some rights you can't give away. Some rights are waivable. For example, I have a right um, in a criminal trial not to speak, um, a right to, uh, to, to uh, not be compelled to be a witness, but I also have a right to speak. I can choose not, I can choose to waive my right of silence and actually testify. I have a right to a lawyer, 
but I actually, if I really insist, have a right not to have a lawyer. It can't be enforced upon me. Some rights are alienable. They're waivable. I can, I can give them up. Some things I can actually sell. I, if I have a piece of property, typically I can sell it to someone else. I can give it to someone else. I can lend it to someone else. Many rights are alienable. We can give them away or, or trade them away for, um, uh, and that's part of our autonomy to do that. Yes, but some things are inalienable. We can't give them away even if we want. They're not waivable. So, for example, our capacity of thought, our reason, we can't turn ourselves into, into beasts. So even if I wanted to say, oh, you just do the thinking for me. No, I can't do that. What it means to be a humanist, I have to do the thinking for myself. Just like I have to do the breathing for myself. I have to do the eating and the, uh, um, uh, and, and the uh, imbibing of beverages for myself. There are certain things that only I can do. In some religious traditions, I can't give away my life, even if I wanted to, because it's not just mine. It's God's. It's a, it's a gift from God. And, and now there, there are other religious traditions in which that's not so. Um, but now we're going to have to have a deep discussion about what rights are actually waivable, because some are. Um, the right to uh, be silent um, in a criminal trial, you know, the right to have a lawyer in a criminal trial, and other rights are inalienable. On some traditions, life itself can't be given up even if you, you want, you can't surrender it. Um, definitely your conscience, your ability to think for yourself can't be surrendered because then you would cease to be basically a human being. I have to do my thinking for myself. So inspiring, Akil, such a beautiful expression of the founder's faith that reason could triumph over passion and cannot be alienated, expressed in Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance and Jefferson's Declaration of Religious Freedom and in so many other sources. Steve, any thoughts on unalienable rights? And then since you both have introduced the fact that this idea of equal citizenship was finally enshrined in the 14th Amendment, tell us this story, which you've told so well, about the natural law sources of the 14th Amendment. Thank you. Um, the Declaration says that the unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think it's noteworthy that property is not listed there, but life and liberty are listed as, along with the pursuit of happiness, which is in the Virginia uh, George Mason first draft. I think the emphasis on equality in the Declaration is there because just as John Milton, when Charles I was executed, emphasized equality, and just as John Locke emphasized equality when James II was chased off the throne of England in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, Americans in 1776 wanted to assert, we are equal to George III, we are equal to English lords, and all of that. And I think he was attempting to uh, really emphasize that. In terms of the um, way into the 14th Amendment uh, of the born free and equal idea, I should first mention that uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Shiler Colfax, in a speech urging ratification of the 14th Amendment, said, quote, the first section of this constitutional amendment is going to be the gem of the Constitution. I will tell you why I love it. It's because it is the Declaration of Independence placed immutably and forever in the Constitution. And I 
agree with Shiler Colfax. I think that's absolutely uh, a correct description of uh, of uh, what what um, uh, ends up happening. Um, the um, um, the way in which um, uh, the Born Free and Equal clauses entered the Constitution is, in I think, in part through the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. And uh, when people during the re- debates in Congress were asked, what does the 14th Amendment's Privileges or Immunities Clause mean, invariably, uh, senators and representatives would say, it means what Justice Bushrod Washington said in Corfield against Coriel, a case interpreting the privileges and immunities clause of Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution. And interestingly, Bushrod Washington, in his opinion, gives what can only politely be called a mangled version of the born free and equal idea. He says, Bushrod Washington says in Corfield against Coriel, the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states may be comprehended under the following general heads, colon, protection by the government, semicolon, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to acquire and possess property of every kind and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety, semicolon, subject nevertheless to such restraints as the government may justly prescribe for the general good of the whole. Well, that language about protection by the government and rights to life and liberty and to pursue happiness and safety, that's all from the Born Free and Equal Clauses. And the framers of the 14th Amendment say that's what the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment meant. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court misread the Privileges or Immunities Clause early on. But I think we can agree with Speaker Shiloh Colfax that the first section of the of the 14th Amendment is the gem of the Constitution because it puts the Declaration of Independence immutably and forever in the Constitution. Akhil, uh, Steve has really beautifully showed us the connection between the Virginia Declaration and early drafts of the 14th Amendment. Again, if you go onto the drafting table and click on the Equal Protection Clause, you see both Mason's draft, the All Men are by nature equally free and independent. And then the various drafts from Bingham's claim that uh, Congress shall have the power to make all laws necessary and proper to secure to all persons full protection and the enjoyment of life, liberty, and property, all the way to the ones that Steve mentioned. Uh, And then there's also your essay on the Citizenship Clause. So, Akhil, tell us more about the relation between the Declaration and the 14th Amendment. So Steve has done a beautiful job. I'm not sure there's a lot more to add, except perhaps one or two interesting points. That privileges or immunities clause that Steve invoked begin with the words, no state shall. Okay, so if you're just a literalist, you say, oh, well, states can't abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens, but hey, you know, the federal government can, can do whatever they want. But no. That first sentence, even before of the 14th Amendment, even before you get to the no state shall, says everyone's born a citizen who's born in the United States. What it means to be a citizen is to have certain rights of citizenship. Um, if uh, you know your New Testament, you know that um, uh, St. Paul basically um, says, um, 
born Saul of Tarsus, I am a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, you see, I'm entitled to certain um, rights. Rome has to protect me wherever I go. That's what it means to be a Roman citizen. So, of course, the federal government has to abide by the privileges and immunities of citizens as well. So then, well, then why didn't they say that, you say, um, in the 14th? Oh, because that went without saying. Okay, well, the professor, why did they say no state shall? Oh, because it wasn't maybe completely clear because the Constitution, the federal Constitution, was mainly a Constitution about the federal government and mainly about the relationship of citizens to the federal government. So, so they thought it really needed to be said with care that, oh, these are principles, the privileges and immunities of citizens that uh, states have to abide by as well. Steve, your thoughts about uh, what Akhil just said and also about further connections between the Declaration and the Constitution itself. Yes. So I think the language in the Declaration is our national creed. And I think so because it's been echoed over the centuries in very famous places. One of the most important events of my lifetime was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington in 1963. And Dr. King said in his famous I Have a Dream speech, quote, I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. As Akhil mentioned, the equality idea is mentioned by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, as with liberate, Born free and equal is mentioned by Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. It's also mentioned famously in the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, issued in 1848, which uh, says, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I think that language about born free and equal goes to the essence of the way Americans think not only of the Constitution, but of the national creed, the founding principles of the United States. It can be contrasted with the language in the Canadian Constitution, which is the Canadian national creed. And that language uh, appears in Article 91 of the Canadian Constitution Act, and it, it empowers the national government to preserve peace, order, and good government throughout all of Canada. Well, Americans believe in equality and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Canadians believe in um, uh, peace, order, and good government. Part of the reason for that is that Canada, Ontario, was founded by American Tories who fled there after the revolution. And so Canada has always been a more Toryish country, while the United States is a more Whiggish country, and that's expressed in these differing national creeds. And Canada, for example, declined to find a right to one person, one vote in seats of the, for the House of Commons, 
And as a result of that, Justin Trudeau was reelected prime minister in the last election with winning only 37% of the vote nationwide. So I think at the essence, I, I think it's the, the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address and the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments and Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech are, as I tell my students, the four cornerstones on which the Constitution rests. It's a very essence of what we are as a nation. Beautifully put. And thank you for calling our attention to those four corners of the American Constitution and for showing the way that Dr. King on the Mall redeemed the promise of the Declaration that had been only partially fulfilled at the convention, resurrected by Lincoln at Gettysburg, uh, evoked by the heroes of Seneca Falls, and then enshrined again during the civil rights movement. Akil, are there other parts of the Declaration that we need to study and commemorate to understand the meaning of July 4th? Absolutely. We've only talked about one paragraph. There are about 1,300 words in all. Uh, so we should just mention at least uh, some of the rest of the words and, and what they're uh, about. Uh, but before I, I do that, I, I do want to um, agree completely with my friend Steve uh, about uh, uh, the I Have a Dream speech and, uh, uh, and Seneca Falls in addition to uh, the Gettysburg Address. And and, and these things do fit together to form a system, the American creed. Um, I just want to remind everyone that where exactly and how the, what we call the I Have a Dream speech um, in 1963, um, where and how um, th those words were uttered, um, um, they're uttered uh, in, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial, the man who actually remember Lincoln gave us the Gettysburg Address, and here's how Martin Luther King begins. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today. So he's invoking, of course, the beginning of the, uh, of the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven. When he says five, it's 100 years after the Gettysburg Address, which was 1863. So um, we've got Jefferson building on Mason and all sorts of other sources in 1776. Then four score and seven years later, Lincoln ex expressly invoking the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. Then five score years later, in the Lincoln, at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, Martin King beginning by riffing on, on Lincoln by saying five score years ago, exactly 100 years ago on the Gettysburg Address. And then, as Steve said, quoting the Declaration. And then, of course, with the Seneca Falls, taking that word men in 1848, taking that word men and saying, of course, the deep idea here is men and women. And Steve earlier said in the, the French, I've also understood that it, it's um, a more universal principle. So all of that, okay, but again, we've just, as Jeff, you said, that's one paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. There, as I said, about 1,300 words in all. What's the rest of it all about? And I would say it's all about two things in addition to this philosophical statement of first principles, here's what uh, we Americans are, are all about. So first, and, and maybe most immediate, 
the Declaration of Independence is just what it says, a Declaration of Independence, not just a first principles of what we believe in, but we are saying that these colonies are now independent of Britain. The key sentence actually was adopted on July 2nd, 1776, by the uh, Continental Congress, and it's uh, repeated in the Declaration of Independence. So what's that key payoff sentence from July 2nd? Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. So what were they saying in July 2nd? We no longer answer to George III. He's not our king anymore. We're on our own. We're free and independent states. They say that on July 2nd. They repeat that. That sentence is embedded in the Declaration of Independence. It's prefaced by this statement of first principles. We want to tell the world what we're all about. And, and then the, what's the rest of the Declaration about? The specific reasons why we are breaking with George III, um, because he basically doesn't deserve our allegiance uh, anymore. And there are basically two or three big ideas here. Um, it's a kind of mass divorce of sorts. He used to be you know, our uh, intimate partner, and now we're walking away from him, and here's why. First set of reasons, and it's a bill of indictment of sorts. These are all the things that he's done. Some of them he's done on his own, some of them he's done um, in tandem with um, his, his allies in, in the British Parliament who have, have misbehaved also. So here's, uh, in a nutshell, the, the, the rest of the Declaration, the reasons why we're breaking with the king. First, he's ruled as a tyrant who has inflicted on his subjects, quote, a long train of abuses. And that's a phrase directly lifted from John Locke's 1689 Two Treatises of Government. And again, some of these abuses are the kings alone. Some of them are um, in tandem with, with parliament. So, and here, here's what those are, just so we remember uh, them. He, um, either on his own or with parliament, has imposed taxes without representation. He's violated jury trial rights, both the rights of defendants and the rights of jurors themselves to govern their communities. He's foisted a servile judiciary and a corrupt bureaucracy upon America. He's abrogated colonial charters. He's inflicting standing armies in peacetime without colonial consent. He's quartered troops to overawe civilians in, in, in urban uh, contexts. He's prevented colonial assemblies from properly meeting he shut in, he's shut down American ports. So if this were like um, a, um, a divorce suit, the, the first uh, set of arguments is basically domestic cruelty. The second is, is, that, is abandonment. Americans aren't leaving George III. He's already left them. He's already started waging war on them. He's broken the basic social contract in which he's supposed to protect them, and they're supposed to be loyal to him. He's, he's already waging war on them. And, um, and then finally, and pulling everything together, they say, and we've asked him again 
and again and again to hear our grievances, and he won't even listen to us. He won't converse with us. He, he, he won't, he, 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 he's simply failed to, to, to keep up his end of what we, we're trying to, of the relationship. We're trying to actually have a conversation with him about what our rights are, and he simply has turned a deaf ear to us. And so here's the language. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Thank you so much for that and for reminding us that on July 4th, we're celebrating not only the free and equal clause, but also the free and independent clause and the reasons that uh, the drafters gave for independence. Steve, before we sum up all of this wonderful learning and light, uh, do you have any thoughts for Are We the People Friends about the free and independent clause and the reasons that the drafters gave for independence? Well, uh, I agree with everything Akhil said. Uh, I would emphasize some additional language that we haven't talked about in the Declaration, which I think is hugely important. Akhil said that by the Declaration, America divorced itself from the United Kingdom. And in some faiths, it's possible to effectuate divorce by saying, I divorce you three times or a certain number of times publicly. And there is the very famous first paragraph of the Declaration, which bears quoting in this regard, which says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So the list of injuries which Akil beautifully summarized are uh, the explanation for the divorce, and the declaration of divorce occurs in the first paragraph. In the second paragraph, aside from the part, parts that we've talked about, the Declaration of Independence says that to secure all the rights that it mentions, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter and to abolish it, and to institute new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing such powers in such form as shall seem to them most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Um, moving, moving on in the Declaration, I did want to comment specifically about the final clause in the Declaration, which uh, effectuates uh, independence. And in that final clause, uh, the Declaration says, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies 
are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. This language is interesting to me because uh, in it you can see the ambivalence Americans have about federalism. On the one hand, the operative clause talks about these united colonies, but it then goes on to say that they be, they are going to become free and independent states, which is certainly how they behave. So there's an idea of the United Colonies uh, uh, declaring the divorce, but there's also the idea that the states uh, will all, 13 of them, become separate nations uh, confederated together, which I think is important. So, you know, as to the other clauses, the causes of the uh, separation and the injuries received, I just mentioned one more thing beyond what Akil said, and that is that the Declaration is a list of grievances against King George III. It does not mention Parliament. Uh, the American colonists thought that Parliament had no jurisdiction over them, that only their colonial legislatures had jurisdiction over them. So they acknowledged that George III was their sovereign, but they did not acknowledge the authority of Parliament over them, so Parliament goes unmentioned. All the grievances mentioned were committed by George III, and he's the one who gets mentioned and nailed for them. And in conclusion, I should just say a final word about George III. George III became King of England in 1760 at the age of 22, and he was of the view that his grandfather, George II, and his great-grandfather, George I, had allowed powers that Queen Anne and William and Mary exercised to lapse, and he was determined to reassert them, and he wanted to reassert them in particular with the American colonies. This was really quite a terrible idea on his part, and I think that his youth, being 22 when he became king, and his idea of reasserting royal powers, which had lapsed over a 70-year period of time, is what created the conflict that led to American independence. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful close reading of the Declaration, which is teaching us so much about what we celebrate on July 4th. We had a, recently a program about state constitutions, and I uh, urged listeners to read their state constitutions. And, and, and one listener, uh, John Barrett, wrote and said he just read uh, the New Hampshire Constitution and read the free and equal clause from the New Hampshire Constitution of 1784. All men are born equally free and independent. Therefore, all government of right originates from the people, is founded and consented, and instituted for the general good. Akhil Amar, uh, you've done so much to teach uh, Americans about the meaning of the Declaration and the Constitution and inspire us to learn more. Please sum up for We the People listeners, what are the ideals of the Declaration that we celebrate on July 4th, and what should each of them do to study, learn about, and celebrate those ideals on our national holiday? Well, we've talked about equality and freedom and happiness uh, we've talked about uh, the race issue with slavery. I'm not sure we've done full justice to gender equality, and I so uh, 
appreciate Steve's mentioning the Seneca Falls Declaration of 1848, um, which is riffing on the language of the Declaration. Uh, just I'm going to read uh, uh, again uh, uh, the opening of that. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. And as Steve said, the Declaration of Independence is really declaring independence from George III. So it keeps saying, he's done this. He, 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 he. And brilliantly in 1848, the women at Seneca Falls say, Let's tell, uh, we want to tell you how man in general has been uh, tyrannical to women, uh, to woman. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman. Um, uh, uh, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. That's just a total um, riff on uh, 1776. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He, 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 and now it's not George III, it's man in general toward women. So it's a brilliant riff on the Declaration of Independence. So, so equality, yes, we've talked about racial equality. Gender equality is important too. So one thing, if our audience wants a little more on that, I actually have a an op-ed coming out in the New York Daily News um, sometime over the next few days. Uh, and um, it's all about the gender issue, and in particular, the wonderful exchange between Abigail Adams and John Adams um, about remembering the ladies, because that's an exchange that occurs in the, the, uh, the, the early months of 1776. So equality, um, uh, uh, liberty, uh, life, uh, inalienable rights, uh, happiness, uh, uh, consent of the government, not just racial equality though, but today especially um, gender equality as well. So that's the f first part of my answer. The second is, how should we observe this today? Um, I, I think by reading the Declaration of Independence um, with our family, um, with our friends at a picnic or um, in your backyard or wherever, and um, I'm hopeful, Jeff, that in the future, you and I and others will actually be able to come up with some materials for our fellow citizens to help them think about how to celebrate the 4th, to do it right, um, what they should do before the fireworks. Ideally, I think um, we should come up with some, uh, the Constitution Center should, should um, I hope we will be involved in this project, come up with some, some materials to, to help ordinary Americans um, uh, across the country we're nonpartisan, red and blue, conservative and uh, and uh, liberal. Um, celebrate this thing. Maybe come up with some materials, kind of like a secular seder. Some some um, um, uh, materials that, that people of all ages in the family that that, that the young ones can participate in, and, and the older kids and and, and the parents. So, uh, but for now. There's no way to celebrate the fourth better, it seems to me, than to read the Declaration of Independence aloud with your friends and family. So beautiful. I'm so looking forward to working with you, Akil, to develop the materials that you suggest so that when Americans read the Declaration aloud together with their families and friends, they can be guided and inspired to learn more. And this podcast is such a, such a wonderful building block for that um, celebration. So Steve Calabresi, the last word is to you as Americans and we the people listeners gathered together with their friends and family to read the declaration aloud on July 4th. What final thoughts would you like them to consider? 
Well, I, I would mention something we haven't talked about yet, which is um, after World War II and after the horrors of Nazism and fascism and the Holocaust, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, the first U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, drafted a universal declaration of human rights, which all the members of the United Nations signed. And strikingly, Article One of the Universal Declaration says, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And Article Two goes on to uh, denounce racism, sexism, and all sorts of other forms of of uh, discrimination. So um, the the world turned powerfully back in 1948 when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was ratified toward the central importance of the born free and equal idea. And as to celebrating the July 4th, I completely agree with Akhil about reading the declaration together with one's friends and family. Uh, the most moving July 4th celebration that I have ever participated in was uh, one about 15 years ago when I was on one of the Yale-sponsored cruises of Greece and the Greek islands. And uh, when the 4th of July rolled around, the Yale professor who was on that tour suggested that we all get together in the auditorium and read the Declaration of Independence one sentence at a time. And we did, you know, floating somewhere off the coast of Crete. And it was very powerful and very moving. And I think passing the ideas of on to our children and grandchildren of the centrality of the Declaration is something that we can do by reading it on July 4th and that we should do. How meaningful to read the Declaration off the coast of Greece, where the ideals of Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle inspired Locke and Montesquieu and Sidney, who in turn inspired Jefferson and Mason, who in turn inspired the women at Seneca Falls and Martin Luther King. Thank you so much, Akhil Amar and Steve Calabresi, for an inspiring convening uh, to celebrate the Declaration and help us understand its meaning. Dear We the People listeners, please take up Akhil and Steve's invitation. Read the Declaration with your families and pledge with me and Steve and Akhil and the National Constitution Center to inspire your children and their children to read the Declaration and learn from its ideals. Akhil Amar and Steve Calabresi, thank you so much for inspiring all of us. And we the people listeners, happy July 4th. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Jackie McDermott, Mac Taylor, and Olivia Gross. Welcome, Olivia. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate and inspiration. And remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, and the devotion to lifelong learning of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash 
donate. Happy July 4th, everyone. Dear We The People listeners, thanks so much for learning together. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you.